0: Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Nick Norman-Smith from Lented Asset Management joins me in studio this evening to guide us through latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Rob Hart from Fairtree Capital to discuss their global real estate prescient fund. All that coming your way shortly. But first, a quick look through what's been making market headlines. The latest round of trade talks between the US and China has ended with a warning rather than a concrete deal between the two economic superpowers. China has warned that all the progress made by the parties on the trade front will be lost if the US forges ahead with any trade sanctions or tariffs. Meanwhile, the White House also issued a warning last week signaling its intention to pursue tariffs on $50 billion of Chinese imports. Staying with the US, its jobs growth accelerated in May The economy added 223,000 jobs during the period, sending the unemployment rate to an 18-year low of 3.8%. The strong unemployment uptick makes it more likely that the Federal Reserve will raise its benchmark interest rate again when it meets later this month. And on to some company news. Deutsche Bank shares are trading at near record lows. The German lender is on a US regulatory watch list of problem banks and has had its credit rating cut by S&P Global as it prepares to cut between seven and 10,000 jobs to reduce costs. He has more on that report.
1: The blows keep coming for Germany's biggest lender. Deutsche Bank's credit rating has been downgraded by Standard & Poor, from A- to treble B+. The ratings agency is questioning whether the new CEO can deliver a strategy to return the bank to profit. It follows a Wall Street Journal report saying the US regulator viewed the bank as troubled last year. Deutsche Bank's CEO was keen to reassure investors and staff on Friday telling them the lender is financially sound and that he's confident in the bank's turnaround plans. Shares lifted in Friday morning trade but they'd fallen 7% the day before to their lowest ever closing level.
2: The fact that the share price is now breaking those lows we had back in 2015-2016 is another sign of the lack of confidence in the bank. It's a huge effort. Maybe Deutsche's future lies in some kind of orderly breakup, but again, that's, that's a longer term discussion. I think they have a, a huge job ahead of them. I think it will take a lot of time and it will be, I think, the, the, the big problem, the thorn in the side, I think, to
3: German government for the months to come.
1: Christian Seving plans to scale back Deutsche's global investment bank and refocus on Europe to chart a return to profitability after three years of losses. In his letter to staff, Seving insisted speculation it was exposed to political uncertainty in Italy was unfounded, and that Deutsche Bank is well positioned to react to excessive moves in debt markets.
0: Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management joins me in studio now. Nick, thanks for your time this evening. let's kick off with that Friday jobs data out of the US, which the New York Times, I think, summed it up by saying we are out of words. Um, 3.8% unemployment, 223,000 jobs added, uh, lowest unemployment rate in 18 years. Are we missing something here or is it just that great? That's what a decade of record low interest rates uh, can do for you, I think, Simon. So
2: underlying economy looking fantastic. Unfortunately for investors, that's not the greatest thing given where valuations are. Because if you look back over history, and it makes complete sense, when the economy is so strong and there's such clear evidence that the economy is so strong, the market has not only priced that in, but priced in the fact that now this is going to stay like this for the next 10 years. Um, so, investment returns are quite, uh, or prospective investment returns are generally quite weak. So, as always, you want to be buying when there's fear. And you want to be buying when unemployment's hitting record highs, not record lows. Um, As
0: counterintuitive as it may sound on... on No, 100%. What was it, 10% in 2009, 2010. um, S&P was probably, what, I can't remember, 12, 13, maybe 1,400.
2: Yeah, and everyone was talking about the new normal and how America was kind of doomed and and it's been the best-performing market. And that's exactly that, because we had such such bad news past year. Yeah,
0: so, you, so you're looking at these S&P 5%, and, and it's, it was up uh, about a quarter percent when I came into studio. I mean, on the surface, looks good and certainly can continue, but but I mean, unemployment can't go much lower than 3.8. GDP can't get much higher than the 300%. We might get that number. Um, at, at some point, the interest rates start to rise, and I've been saying this to all my guests over the last couple of weeks. This rising interest rates, ultimately, are gonna start sucking cash out, and out of the economy, out of the market, and this will all end. And we are closer to the end than we are the beginning. We just don't know when. 100%. Look at it really simplistically. Look where interest
2: rates have been um, over the last 20, 30 years. And look where they are now. And they are, they are much closer to the bottom than the top. And we know that uh, economies and interest rates are, are cyclical. So that, that's exactly it. And we're starting to see some of the effects of this. There are a lot of effects that, quite frankly, no one knows exactly what sure. a, a decade of record low interest rates gives you but it's unlikely to be pretty all the way. There's going to be dislocations, and that's exciting from an investment point of view because these will come up. We're starting to see one or two. The, the obvious one was bond-like consumer staple sort of companies, so these rel- relatively high-yielding cash-generating businesses that, uh, that were you know, safe. And, and people said, bonds are too expensive, so let's put our money in this. And of course, what happened is the market bid those up mm-hmm. to very expensive levels. We've started seeing the bottom falling out of them. So if you look at consumer staples uh, companies this year, they've been under a lot of pressure. We still think there's quite a long way to go. They were so overvalued. The one area that's interesting is tobacco stocks, which are obviously one portion of those consumer staples. And they've had not only the, the negativity of rising interest rates, but they've had some regulatory issues. As they have every year or two for the last 20 years. (laughs) Um, And so those look attractive. The rest, we're still waiting, but there's likely to, you know, we'll probably see just as, as valuations overshot we'll probably see them undershooting and we'll probably see a whole lot of more opportunities that, that we, we actually, quite frankly, don't know where they'll come from, but we, we're sitting and, and
0: waiting patiently. You're a bottom up. In other words, you're gonna go look at those sectors. You, you, you mentioned the tobacco stocks. Any in particular, any other spaces that are looking attractive in a market that is broadly quite expensive almost anywhere you look?
2: Yeah, it's generally quite difficult. So so a great place to look is areas that that investors are kind of repulsed by um so one of the few is retail mm-hmm. obviously with amazon coming in and supposedly going Death to destroy everything though. and i think there's a lot of truth to to a lot of the retail but there are certain certain areas that that are throwing up some opportunities so if you look at department stores probably the worst of the worst right um, to such an extent that a, there's a company called Macy's. Yeah, in I was going to say Macy's, Sears, those stores. Yeah, exactly. So, so, Penny. And, and a lot of those. So Sears and JCPenney managed very poorly, and basically they had a bit of real estate underpin, but they've basically they've basically closed at zero. Now Macy's has been managed a lot better, yet you've still got this underpin. So basically, the the market cap of Macy's is. is Pricing in zero value, actually negative value for the rest of the business. It's got some prime real estate. It owns an entire city block um, in Manhattan <laughs> and various others that could be converted into other areas and you know to, into other uses. And actually, management are doing a relatively good job um, of of turning the business around. It's obviously a very tough environment, but those are the sort of areas that that you are starting to see opportunities. No, it's a fair point.
0: Amazon's going to shake up a lot, but it's not like we're not going to have any department stores and the like left. Do you get much yield from stocks like Macy's and the like? I mean, you've been paid to hold them at least.
2: Yeah, a lot of them are paying decent uh, decent dividend yields. Macy's been quite good with their capital, so they... They are paying back quite a lot of debt, which is obviously it's good to have a strong balance sheet in an area like this. Buying back stock is mm-hmm. obviously a great thing when a company's stock price is so, is so cheap. So not necessarily buying it for the yield, but it's interesting interesting to see what management are doing and if they're allocating capital efficiently.
0: Uh, and buying back stock at the bottom rather than what Apple is doing, which is buying back stock at the top, which intuitively to me is just completely the wrong way around. Oh, absolutely. And and we see it time and again with the resource companies, you know, they
2: have got all this money. Buy back shares at the top, raise equity at the bottom. It's obviously the whole
0: point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the investing 101 turned in and said, let's go to trade walls. Uh, China, we mentioned in the intro, not much happening there, although still some saber rattling. EU, Canada, Mexico, certainly Trump is saying, we, 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 we're gonna put the 50 billion on, we're gonna do, and, and uh, I know the Canadian pr- uh, pr- prime minister, president, I don't know what his designation is, more than anything, just kind of like seems confused. It's like, you know, I thought we were friends. Are trade wars, I mean, intuitively, trade wars are bad for capitalism. They add friction into that process, which is not what we want. Are they perhaps as as as, as fearful as, as we should think? I think they
2: are if they come through fully. Um, we've seen with Trump that it's sometimes a lot of, of bluster, not so much delivery, although he seems to now be following through on, on the EU um, and and those tariffs that that we thought, um, you know, or which which he said he'd kind of, Blocked off for a while, so yes, everyone is a loser. Um, the question is, but but just remember, I mean, the, these are political cycles. Uh, he'll eventually be gone. Hopefully, sooner rather than later for the for the world.
0: Um, Worst case, two and a half years. Yeah, but, the, but but
2: the lesson for investors once again is. Make sure that you have a good margin of safety because you're going to have politicians who are going to come and, and do things like that. So you don't want an investment thesis that is premised on, look at all the great things that Trump uh, is doing because they can That's turn That's a great on. point.
0: Uh, you, you You don't want to invest for politicians because they come and go. They typically most politicians are not you know the sort of people you want to take home for dinner you need to have those cases those investments you need to say this works regardless who's in the white house or Tain Hayes or ten downing street
2: yeah exactly so look at look at what what happened with a lot of us stocks with the with the tax you know the the good tax laws you know in, any cut of tax is good in, in my opinion um, and we've seen that we've seen those stocks rally that's fine if they were really undervalued but to extrapolate that out into your valuation for the next 20 years is a bit dangerous because we may well have a president who comes in yep. the next time and raises taxes again. Someone in
0: 2020. Let's swing across to Europe. Let's quickly touch on Deutsche Bank. All-time lows. Um, we were saying before we came on air, you know, we're not sure what's on that balance sheet. I'm not sure Deutsche Bank is what's, sure what's in that balance sheet. Are they at risk of just collapsing? I mean, or... How bad can
2: this any, get? Any bank is, you know, the, the danger with banks versus uh, any normal business is that they're leveraged. Yeah. So they, they've taken, taken some money and they lend out a lot more. So when things go badly, they can go badly very quickly and very, very rapidly. So um, it's trading at 0.3 times book. So the market is saying, uh, we, you know, the market certainly doesn't believe what's on that book. Um, as we said, you know, we, we don't know what's what's on that book. So in a bank where there's not a lot of hard assets left if, if you've really priced the loans incorrectly, we tend to steer clear. Having said that, 0.3 times book, very a lot of negativity, you know, it's, it, it's always a potential opportunity. But generally, financial services, businesses around the world are relatively attractively priced. So do you need to take on that risk when you can probably buy better franchises at reasonable valuations? It, it, it's not something- Yeah, you know,
0: that's a fair point. It might be cheap, but it's cheap for with risk. You can get maybe less cheap, but a significantly lower risk with yeah, other I banks. Remember, right? You know,
2: if, the, if, those, if those loans are, are wrong, there's a very thin capital buffer on that balance sheet. You need to raise equity. Raising equity, as we said earlier, when share prices are at record lows, that's very dilutive and very negative for for existing shareholders.
0: Talking raising Italy, uh, raising equity. Italy kind of they seem to maybe have a. I mean, I don't know. A week ago they were having elections. A week later they seem to say, no, no, don't worry, we all sorted out. There was a rumor that they were going to print lira over the one weekend and, and 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 solve the problem. Is this a a new Greece, but a bigger Greece? I mean, not to disparage Greece, Greece was a much smaller economy um, and a much smaller debt burden than 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 Italy is. Yeah, it's you know
2: Italy the third largest. Uh, Economy, so it th- this is a big deal, and, and it's interesting how the markets move focus. You know, we, if a couple of what is it two years ago that we we're everyone was freaking out about uh, Europe, and then probably another three or four before that, yeah, not much has changed. Yes, Greece seems like they're starting to marginally manage, they've still got massive amounts of debt, but those underlying structural problems haven't gone away, uh, so so one does need to be careful, but of course, that that does throw up uh, you know potential opportunities as well. But I think people forgot about or, or chose to forget about um, some of the European issues and and bought a lot of the stocks blindly and, and now they're coming under a bit of pressure.
0: Opportunities in terms of, of Europe, in terms of perhaps Italian equity or Italian bonds? Yeah, you know, the, the, any bond is, is tough when, when we are close to the bottom of an
2: interest rate cycle yeah it's we're not bond specialists so to to go digging i'm sure there are some opportunities but yeah i think i think some of the peripheral issues maybe if it if it really hurts the eurozone um you know the euro came under some pressure that's a nice opportunity
0: to to diversify your currency exposure out of a quite expensive so so just the classic i remember when greece was happening uh, there was hellenic bottling which was one of the biggest coke companies in europe got slaughtered and truthfully they didn't sell much coke in greece they sold it in other parts created opportunity yeah. for, for folks to go and get a good company at a good price.
2: Yeah, exactly. So those are, those are, are the, the obvious ones. And also further afield, we've obviously had all these issues in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Start looking at some of the some of the Turkish companies are starting to look uh, relatively attractive. Yes, there's some risk there, but a lot of them are priced for, for a lot of negativity. But obviously when you've got potential currency crises there, you need to make sure that the companies don't have <coughs> foreign uh, liabilities and local assets. Otherwise we have exactly what we had in the 98 Asian crisis. But there's some good non-local based businesses there that are trading at relatively attractive valuations
0: we're going to go for a short break when we come back we'll take a look at the fairtree global real estate prescient fund with rob hart don't go away Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio is Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management. Joining us on the line to discuss the Fairtree Global Real Estate Prescient Fund is Rob Hart. Rob, evening. Thanks for joining us on the line.
3: Yeah, My pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Good to be here. Uh,
0: Let's kick off. You you mentioned in your commentary, Fund was doing fairly well. December, January, Feb for you and your benchmark, a, a bit of a horror show for three months. What happened? Has it picked up in the month subsequent?
3: Uh, Yeah, well, we had a very good first year. We were up uh, 8% in U.S. dollar terms, our index by 4%. We've given 2% of that away uh, over the last couple of months. Just a a few things went wrong at the same time. Some of our long-term bets, like being overweight Europe in our portfolio, being overweight Singapore in our portfolio, being overweight data centers in our portfolio, things that have been, been consistently working for us for a whole year, basically all reversed at the same time. So we've given away a bit of our performance over the last couple of months.
0: Have you, have you shifted? Have you pulled back European weight? I see Europe currently sort of uh, around 15% U.S., the majority at about a half. Have you sort of corrected for that, or do you think it's just a trough and it'll come through?
3: Um, so in Europe, we remain overweight. We switch things around a little bit, uh, pulling out of, uh, for instance, one of our Spanish positions. Uh, because of the uncertainty over there. But then again, we've increased some of our German uh, exposure because interest rates went down there, and we think that's going to be good news for the bond-like proxies that we've got over there. Um, uh, some uh, We run pretty tight risk management, so we've got targets and stops on all of our positions. And what that's meant is some of our positions that did go down, for instance, the Singapore one, we ended up cutting that position. So our Singapore overweight, for instance, has disappeared. Uh, our overweight in data centers has disappeared as well because that hit our, our stop as well automatically, you know, when you, when you run a, a tight risk management portfolio like that and you hit your stops, your cash position goes up. So we're a little bit more defensively positioned after a tough couple of months.
0: Do you, do you start when you're, when you're looking to invest? You've got some cash, you're looking for a property stock to invest. Are you starting off geographically or are you sort of agnostic and you're just looking for the right stock and perhaps in the, in the right sector?
3: Yeah, look, uh, well, well, we, we term our strategy three bites of the apple. What we're trying to do here is we start looking at things top-down. The first level of decision-making we make is the region. So as you pointed out before, uh, 55% of our index is the U.S., uh, 13% is Europe, 5% is the U.K., and then you move over to Asia for 10% in Japan, 8% in Hong Kong, 6% in Australia, and 2% in uh, Singapore. So what we start off by doing is figuring out are we going to be overweight or underweight on the top level, the U.S., Europe, or Asia. And then we move a level down and you say the second bite of the apple or we, we look at the various um, sectors across the region. So residential, do you like uh, industrial? Do you like data centers? Do you like self-storage? And that's the second bite of the apple. Then the third bite of the apple, I think is what everybody else does. We try to do that as well as we can, is looking at the stocks. So obviously we're looking for quality management, strong balance sheet, good strategy, et etc. et cetera. So that's So that's our methodology.
0: Your, your, your geographic weighting heavily skewed to the US, obviously the, the predominant glo, global, global economy there. We saw great jobs numbers. Uh, out uh, late last week, I was chatting with Nick before the break. Um, the U.S. Is, is, in many senses, priced for perfection. Um, are, are you are you are you worried about interest rates rising in that space, or do you think you've still got got room there?
3: Definitely. Look, we are concerned about interest rates moving up. Interest rates are very important for property stocks, as, as you'd expect. So uh, we are actually slightly underweight in the U.S. because of that. You're fairly late in the cycle there, late in the property cycle, late in the cycle overall. And that means that you've got strong GDP growth, thanks in part to tax cuts and things like that um, and fiscal spending. Um, But you've got the offsetting negative of higher interest rates, which is bad news for property stocks in general because it pushes yields up and pushes capital values down. So we've got to be cognizant of that. Um, we prefer Europe at the moment. Like I said, we overweight Europe because you do have a synchronized recovery happening there and and you still have a decent output gap and you still have a decent amount of unemployment. So you're not seeing interest rates moving up in Europe just yet. So you're still in a relatively good spot. You mentioned, you know, why we still overweight Europe. Well, I think the Spanish and Italian issues will be resolved over time. Uh, And given the weakness we've had there, we think this is actually a fairly good entry point to that market. It's probably worth mentioning as well that we are significantly uh, – have a larger portion of our benchmark in Asia than most of our competitors, and that's one of our uh, differentiating factors with most of our peers. Uh, I spent 20 years in Asia, and so I tend to focus a bit more on those markets. So we specifically chosen an index that includes the property developers, which uh, makes Asia you know, about 24% of our weighting in total.
2: Rob and Nikia, uh, what, what is your outlook and positioning in terms of, I mean, we were chatting earlier on the show, um, Amazon is, is, is out there to kind of completely decimate retail, it's obviously having quite a negative effect on, on malls, um, I know that the mall operators are doing quite a lot to reinvent themselves, what is your, what is your outlook and how are you positioned in, in terms of that from a from valuation and, and stock selection point of view?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I mean, we run various uh, sector themes and various country themes. We've talked about the countries before. Uh In terms of one of the sector themes that we've been looking at is e-commerce versus bricks and mortar retail, and that's something we've been playing consistently uh, since we uh, since we started uh, just over a year ago. Um, you know, there, there are beneficiaries of e-commerce, for instance, logistics. We are Overweight Prologis, uh, which is a great logistics player. Uh, you know, you need three times the amount of logistics space uh, for, uh, for e-commerce as you do for bricks and mortar retail. So the log- logistics space is doing very well out of e-commerce. On the other end of the spectrum, most of the growth that you're getting in retail sales in the US is going to e-commerce. So the bricks and mortar retail shopping centers and uh, shopping malls are doing quite badly and we are underweight those, those sectors.
0: Same with, with the allocations. And the one thing that always strikes me about global property in South Africa, we've got office, retail, commercial. We've got one storage business. You go offshore and there's just all these different. You've got data centers and lodgings, et cetera, et cetera. Your biggest is is, is residential. Are you still sitting in, in residential as your biggest? What's that attraction?
3: Yeah, we're still sitting in residential uh, because there's a structural undersupply of residential units in the U.S., uh, if you look at the, the long-term supply versus the supply over the last few years, there's a, there's a relatively acute shortage. Um, and the reason for that is uh, you had so many of these companies going bankrupt in the global financial crisis and that they never really banded together again, and there were, there's, a, there's a shortage of property development. And by the time you needed a lot more property development uh, further down the line from a couple of years ago, uh, the uh, unemployment was so low that it's very hard to get these workers And so there's a structural shortage of units. Uh, Also, the millennials favor renting over buying. And so when you're playing the residential property stocks, the ones that we look at, these are the guys that are building units to rent. Uh, There's a good structural tailwind for them.
0: Before we came on air, I was chatting with Nick and, you know, and, and property yields, in particular in South Africa, the, the yields on properties have been depressed in part because the stocks have flown so incredibly high. They're coming back, but that's another story. Uh, is, 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 do you still get offshore quality yields coming through and higher yields, markedly higher yields, than in the equity space?
3: Uh, yes, you do. I mean, the, uh, you get there's about 180 basis points spread right now. Between the yields of the S and P and the yields of the REIT index, so you know, there's a it's fairly fairly sizable.
0: Uh, Nick, I mean property. I mean, obviously, I, I, I've always been a, a fan of listed property rather than owning my own house. Is it something which you, which you which you put in your fund as a, as an asset? Uh, at the right price. Um, I think uh, the problems, particularly
2: in South Africa, is, is the, the premiums to net asset value that, that you've had to pay to get into these property stocks is generally not good for, for future returns. So I think that's the same um, around the world. So if you can buy any asset at a, at a good price, globally, if you look at it, you look at the returns on equities versus the returns on physical property, equities significantly outperform. Property generally does inflation plus a little bit. Um, of course, if you buy them at a discount to their fair value, you can, generate, you can generate strong returns. It is a tough environment now because a lot of people, we talked about bond proxies earlier, a lot of people go into property as a bond proxy as well, which means uh, that's probably some of the reason why South African pricing went, went up so strongly. So yes, a reversal in that interest rate environment can hurt some stocks. It obviously depends how they're positioned, how their balance sheets are structured, but um, that's generally not too positive. So, generally speaking, we think you'll probably find more more opportunities when when rates are higher and, and people are a little bit more negative on on all of those sectors. Um, but does not mean that there's there's no opportunity for for bottom-up stock pickers or, or people who you know look at specific areas.
0: Uh, Robert I was- Chatting earlier, when I was learning about equities back in the 80s and 90s, the idea was property, you bought a discount to net asset value. We haven't seen that in the South African environment in, in a decade and a half or more. Globally, is it also a case of where you're paying premiums for those net asset values to the properties?
3: No. uh, Across most of the jurisdictions in the world these days, you're buying them at significant discounts. The U.S. long-term average, the stocks have traded more or less in line with NAB. At the moment, they're trading at about a 10% discount to NAB, and that's probably because of the fears of interest rate rises. They underperformed the S&P quite substantially last year, and that's given you some fairly good entry points. You pay uh, sort of more of a premium to NAV uh, if you're looking at exceptional growth. Uh, some of the sectors where you are getting better growth, like the industrial sector because of logistics, uh, you know, like the data centres which are growing quite rapidly, those you tend to pay uh, at NAV or a slight premium to NAV. Some of the other uh, uh, jurisdictions in the world, you know, like Hong Kong, you can still be buying property stocks. Big property stocks at about a 40, or 30, or 40% discount to NAV. So There are still opportunities if you're willing to look across the world. Japan, as well, is very cheap at the moment. There's quite a lot of supply in the office property market in Tokyo. As a result, the market's quite concerned there, uh, and those uh, big property developer stocks there, uh, you know, sort of a very big market cap, 20 billion US dollar market cap stocks are trading at 40, 45% discounts to NAV.
0: Is that the market just taking a jaundiced view on Japan and saying, you know, a, a, an economy that's been struggling to get growth now for 30 years uh, and, and, and an aging economy and therefore marking down uh, to deep discounts?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely, uh, definitely what's happening. You are trading at, you know, but that's been the story in Japan for 20 years and you're trading at the lower end of the range. Uh, you know, of those 20 years as well. I don't think you're ever going to get those stocks trading at a premium to NAV, but they could easily trade at a say a 20% discount, which would give you very good returns from here. The, I mean, what's one thing that's surprising about Japan is that the workforce is actually growing at a relatively decent clip. Uh, As people are working later and later, the biggest contributor to that is the uh, the over-65s that are working and also more and more women joining joining the workforce. And with more people, that obviously increases the demand for uh, for for office space. The corporates in Japan are also making more money than they ever have in the past. So, uh, you know, the corporate environment is quite conducive to taking up more office space, which is good news for the stocks that we look at, which are predominantly office developers in, in Tokyo.
0: Yeah, fair point. And a lot of them, obviously, global stocks or global businesses might not be doing so well in Japan, but doing better globally. That's the show for the week. My thanks to our guests, Nick Norman-Smith, CIO at Lentis Asset Management, Rob Hart, Portfolio Manager of the Fairtree Global Real Estate Prescient Fund. Thanks to you for watching. I'll catch you same time next week. Goodbye.